There's this YouTube video I remember watching my first year as a student, I think during orientation, about the history of Simmons. Hi everyone, we're here today to tell you a little bit about the history of Simmons College. We figured, what better way to build Simmons pride than to tell you about the founding of our school, some of our favorite It was made by a group of students, I think around five years ago. It is uncertain why John Simmons decided to leave his fortune to endow Women's College, which has now grown into the College of Arts and Sciences, the School of Nursing and Health Sciences, the School of Social Work, the Graduate School of Library and Information Science, and the School of Management. Was it the young women who sewed those early suits, or his two daughters, who outlived his sons? No one knows, but generations of women and men are grateful to him, and we welcome you as you become a member of this phenomenal community. I'm glad I was reminded of that video because it let me know that I wasn't alone in my questions about the history of Simmons. This is Simmons Under the Surface, a monthly podcast series where we take a deep dive into current issues and hot topics with members of the Simmons community. My name is Sanaya Sampson-Hill, and I'll be your host for this month's episode. We'll try to cover a wide range of topics in this podcast, but the first one we'll cover in this episode is Simmons. Maybe you heard the news that we officially became a university, and it's not just the name that has been changed. The university has been restructured to house four new colleges, the College of Natural, Behavioral, and Health Sciences, the College of Organizational, Computational, and Information Sciences, the College of Social Sciences, Policy, and Practice, and the Gwen Ifill College of Media, Arts, and Humanities. Okay, the names are a mouthful, I know. Perhaps you're wondering why we made this move to university. Maybe you're confused or worried that the institution you know will become unrecognizable, and that's okay. Whatever feelings you may have about the changes are valid, and the changes are worth talking about, which is why I wanted to spend this episode sharing the story of Simmons with you, how we started, where we have been, and where we're going, so to give you a better idea of how we got to where we are today at Simmons University. It also felt fitting to discuss Simmons in the episode being released in October because it's Simtober, not just here on campus, but across the country. What's Simtober? It's a month of celebrating all things Simmons and John, our founder. On October 30th, we celebrate Founders Day, which is John Simmons' birthday. And that's where I want to start today. Not necessarily the day of John's birth, but his life. I wanted to know who he was, how he made his fortune, and most importantly, what, or who, motivated him to found a college for women at a time when access to education for them was nearly inconceivable. In order to find out these things, I knew just the woman I had to talk to. Good morning. Am I speaking to Denise? You are. Hi, Denise. This is Sanaya. On the phone now is Denise Pappas, an alumna, a former trustee, and the author of John's biography titled John Simmons, The Measure of a Man. I graduated in 1971 with a degree in art history and also English. From there, I became a teacher. I went to Brown after Simmons got a master's and was a teacher. I then went back and got an MBA from Simmons, so I'm a double alum. That, you know, got me interested in the whole idea of entrepreneurship. She didn't become interested in learning about John's life until after this pivotal moment. But the real thing that motivated me and made me want to write the book about Simmons was this. I was very impressed with Simmons College in 1992. 
What happened then was a real tragedy. A classmate of mine, Betsy McCandless, who was a wonderful, warm, smart, smart person, was murdered by her ex-husband in a uh, situation of domestic violence. And that was just earth-shattering at the time. Again, this was in 1992, so, you know, that many years ago, the culture was entirely different. It was a time when people tended to blame the victim. Uh, the difference uh, that uh, was made in my life is that instead of sort of shunning the idea of really speaking out about Betsy, Simmons College, you know, and the administration, it was uh, President Dan Cheever at the time, was incredible. Um, really supportive in terms of saying, what can we really do to change the culture now? Didn't care so much about the loss of reputation that might come from the idea that they were uh, sort of emphasizing that a woman had been murdered in domestic violence that went to their college. Instead, they started an incredibly progressive support system. What happened was a group of alums, uh, and myself included, started Betsy's Friends, which, to my knowledge, was the first relationship of violence prevention peer-to-peer group in the entire country. I think this is the action that really made me a true believer in Simmons College itself. Later, I was asked to become a trustee, and I thought, what's the one thing that I could do that would, um, you know, be a benefit to the college? And because I had studied the book uh, Delayed by Fire, which was written in 1945, uh, Professor Emeritus from Simmons uh, about Simmons College, it only included one chapter on John. Very little has been known about him at that time. So I decided uh, I should write the, the book that I wish I could have read. You might know that he was born in Rhode Island, he had amassed a lot of his fortune through real estate investment, and that he was famous for inventing the ready-made suit. Of course, we all know he endowed in his will the money to found Simmons College, but I think it's really important to put into context why and how he did that because it was kind of a radical thing to do in his time, and a strong testament to who he was as a person. He was a man of uh, his time. He played many roles in his life, just like we all do. He started out, of course, as a son. Uh, He was the sixth child born to very loving parents in Little Compton, Rhode Island. He was born, as I said, uh, 222 years ago, in 1796, to a man named Benoni. Benoni had been a Revolutionary War veteran, He lost his arm. It was blown off by a cannonball in a battle in Lake Champlain against the uh, Brits. It was also recorded in some other court documents that he worked harder with that one arm than other men did with two. Benoni was married to a wonderful girl named Nancy Bailey Simmons, and she was remarkable in herself. She famously said when asked, why are you marrying this uh, one-armed man, I'd rather be hugged by that one arm than any other arm in the world. They had a pretty nice relationship. John uh, went to high school, um, and, and uh, he went to a, a school called the Peaked Top School that is still in existence in Little Compton, Rhode Island, at the Historical Society. John himself didn't graduate from high school, but he did follow his brother to Boston and became a tailor's apprentice. The other role that he took on pretty quickly was at age 22, he married a woman named Anne Small Simmons. So he also had the role of married man. And as soon as he got married, he moved from his brother's shop to a shop two doors down. The thing I should tell you about um, his wife, Anne Small uh, Simmons, uh, from Provincetown, Mass., was sadly, we only have three things. She was a woman, again, of her time, where um, a woman never really appeared in in the newspaper. I was able to find her birth certificate, her marriage certificate, and her death certificate. Mm -hmm. John was a father, 
of six children. He had four sons and two daughters. And he was the kind of protective dad, a self-made man that was truly upwardly mobile. John's wife and daughters were some of the many women in his life who may have had an influence in his decision to found a woman's college. More on that later. John Simmons was a tailor who was in the right place at the right time. After the War of 1812, the Industrial Revolution started both force in Boston. And that meant there were a lot of men coming to town, coming to work in the factories and as seafaring members of society. They were coming without their women, who were the ones who were doing the sewing for them. So they needed ready-made clothes, something quick, quick to uh, wear because their women were back on the farms and they couldn't get the materials to them fast enough, especially if they were going to be shipped out of Boston. The two other things that John was able to cap us, so we, we knew he had the demand for labor as a breadwinner um, and as a tailor. Um, we knew then, too, that he was capitalizing on the idea of raw materials coming from the cotton gin invention really um, a whole generation sooner. And then the, at the same time, he was capitalizing on the environment that he lived in Boston and worked in Boston, which was relatively close to Lowell, where the textile manufacturing uh, center was being established in that same era. Um, he was able to capitalize, in other words, on cheaper made cloth than if it had been done by women by hand on the spinning wheel. The other thing I want you to know about John is that he was an entrepreneur, and he really created the ready-to-wear industry. As I said, when we had a group of men coming to Boston without their women folk who would sew for them, and please be mindful that this was all happening 30 years before the sewing machine was even invented, everything at that time had been had to be custom done. But John figured out that uh, it was important to create small, medium, and large sizes quickly and efficiently, and that would be good enough for these men to wear and uh, purchase. The thing that made John famous as an entrepreneur is that uh, he had fixed prices, uh, which, again, was a novelty item at that time. Usually people bargained for their clothes. The other thing that he did uh, well was that he had glass plates put in his shop windows. In other words, um, again, 200 years ago, this was quite a novelty to have a glass plate window where people could look in and see your goods and make judgments about your wear without having to deal with you directly. And the other thing he was famous for was doing ha having good quality goods that's written in, about in different Boston newspapers at the time. So he developed a lot of trust as a manufacturer. So the ready-made was John's claim to fame, but it also would not have been possible without literally the hands that made the clothing. John Simmons owed a lot of his fortune to the woman who sewed his suits together. For a lot of the women, that was the only thing they were allowed to do to make a living. From the 1800s, early 1800s, till at really, you know, about 75 years, uh, the opportunities available for women would be to do factory work, to do service work, to get married. What they couldn't do was they couldn't vote. They had difficulties speaking in public. It was considered rude, or, um, and they would be made fun of. They would be criticized if they spoke up in public. If they were lucky enough to be in the middle class, they could get a high school education, but that would imply that they didn't have to work to support the families, which wasn't always the case. They usually have to drop out of high school. College at that time, was, especially when it started being more active in the 1870s and 80s, was reserved mostly for upper-class, uh, middle-class women. Women of the truly upper class, wealthy, wealthy families still sent their daughters to finishing schools in Europe. Women at that time could not hold public office, they could not keep their own names, and they could not keep their own ownership of their own property once they'd married. Men still made all the rules. 
I should say that he uh, employed 20 men uh, to do the cutting. They were the actual cutters in his flop um, shop, which is what they call the manufacturing house of the clothing industry. Men got $2 a day, and then John would bring the, um, the cut pieces to women at their own homes to do the piecework to sew them together. They got 50 cents a day. So just as he found an opportunity to make money with the ready-made clothing, he also saw an opportunity to improve the mobility of the woman he owed much of his success to. He left his money in his will to endow Simmons Female College. Please remember that he did this at a time when no school in all of New England would admit women. 150 years ago, no school and college in all of New England would admit women. It's often been puzzled over why he did this. What was his motivation? Well, what happened was his lawyer eventually said that he did this to pay back the needlewomen upon whose labor his fortune had been made. And the interesting thing about the beginning of Simmons College is that when, by uh, 1899, when Simmons was incorporated and you know made into a true college after a lot of troubles that we can speak about later, it was chosen to be at 300 the Fenway in order to be more accessible to the women, the working-class women who would eventually be the students at Simmons College who lived in south, the south end of Boston and in Roxbury. The trustees of Simmons College wanted to make it accessible for those commuting students. So I thought that was interesting. Instead of going out to the Jamaica Way, they chose the property at 300 the Fenway. So that's just an example of how even the influence of the needlewomen came to play in the location of the college. Remember when Denise mentioned that John was only survived by two daughters and no sons or grandchildren? He did have such a strong desire to support and protect his children, and he did the best that he could. Both daughters eloped with men he disapproved of. He had a daughter named Mary Ann, who at age 23 eloped with a man named George Dixon. He was an Englishman who became very abusive of uh, Mary Ann Simmons, uh, his wife, and um, he left his wife. He left Marianne in Cuba with no money, destitute, penniless, starving, pretty much, and John had to come and rescue her. John also had another daughter, Alvina, who was four years younger than his, uh, her sister. She also eloped. This time she eloped with a tailor from Washington Street, the next street over from where the Simmons family lived on Tremont Street. His name was Edward White, and unlike the George Ditson situation with a very negative son-in-law, Edward White proved to be actually a good son-in-law who became a trustee of John Simmons' will, as a matter of fact. They reconciled, and Simmons brought the newlywed home three blocks away from his own home on Tremont Street. He did not leave all of his wealth to his daughters upon his death, when he very well could have. But at this time, I think John really was aware of how much all the women folk depended on him for his energy, enthusiasm, financial expertise, and health. He must have reflected at that time on how other women didn't have the same family protection and resources that his daughters did. He really wanted to pay back the women who had worked as his seamstresses, the women that he had seen by going to their homes and seeing who were doing piecework for him when he was originally started as a tailor. He would journey to their homes and see how meager their working conditions were, perhaps second shift after having been a farm woman or having been a factory laborer in some other way, women would do peace work for him on the side at night. He realized their conditions and how much those could be improved. His money would go a lot further than just in building another mansion, and I think that's part of the reason that he endowed Simmons Female College. 
was John's desire to found a women's college radical. It was also really ambitious. It was intended by John to be a tuition-free institution. Most of the money that was to go to found Simmons College was tied up in Boston real estate. John expected that the real estate returns would be uh, from the investment for the renters and that sort of thing would go to uh, have the women um, have tuition-free educations. But things didn't go perfectly planned. In fact, you could say much of John's life and work was really imperfect. When I asked Denise for something people really didn't know about John, she had this anecdote to share. Because of my research through the MIT um, archives, I was able to find out about the sewing machine. It turns out that in 1876, Elias Howe uh, had developed and patented the first sewing machine. He actually got into contact with John Simmons and asked him if he wanted to invest. Now again, because John's our hero, and when I learned about this, I was rooting for him, saying, oh, John, go for it, go for it. You know, this is going to be big, the sewing machine. You know, it will be really universal, you know, uh, within a decade. However, John, what happened was uh, Elias Howe met John at the Quincy Market Emporium, um, where John had his business, and they tested out the machine against five of John's best female workers. Of course, in those days, they were called the girls. Mm -hmm. Uh, Anyway, as luck would have it, the machine won, and yet John declined the offer to invest in the sewing machine. Now, you might say, why? Well, at this time, you know, in any um, industry, when something is new and innovative, there's a lot of fixed production costs and startup costs and that sort of thing. So one single sewing machine at that time in 1876 would have cost $300. And John, just at that time, made the business decision that that was too much money. He would rather spend it elsewhere, perhaps on salaries for the women, the needle women who were doing his work. He also realized it was a disruptive technology, and maybe he was a little bit fearful that it would put these women out of business if, they, if it was, you know, doing such an um, incredibly speedy job. I should say, and uh, I've thought about that over the years, and sort of that's the, oh, what if in history, you know, for our college. But at the same time, it made me realize nobody's perfect, you know. But you don't have to be perfect. You can all be imperfectly perfect and still get it right. The one thing that he did do, as, as we've talked about before, is he did endow Simmons College. When he could have just spent the money on himself, no, he didn't do that. He could have spent it, you know, in a greater amount on his family. No, he didn't do that. Instead, he really thought about something other than himself, and he did an incredible job by starting this incredibly creative, innovative place we now call Simmons University. Imperfect might also be an accurate way to describe the actual founding and incorporation of Simmons. John died in 1870, but Simmons' founding year is dated to 1899, and it doesn't take that long to found a college usually. So what happened? You could say it was delayed by fire. My name is Jason Wood. I'm the uh, university archivist and the deputy director of the uh, Simmons University Library. I've been at Simmons since 2001, so about 17 years working here. Wow. Prior to, yeah, wow, indeed. <laughs> uh, prior to that, I was a student in the uh, School of Library Information Science, getting a concentration in archival 
management. I knew I had to talk to Jason for this podcast because he's pretty well versed in the history of the institution. It is his job after all. The core responsibility of the University Archives is to document the history of the institution going all the way back to its founding in 1899 and even before that. For A lot of the work that I do is, is working to sort of make this history available. So I work a lot with researchers who might be interested in aspects of Simmons history or Simmons alums or programs that the, the uh, university had in the past. There's that side of it. I also work a lot with departments on kind of capturing their story today, recognizing that history didn't end in 1950 or 1980 or even 2000. So a, a lot of it is to work with senior administrators, with departments, with student groups, to try to find the materials they produce that kind of best tell their story. We mainly discussed the first hundred years of Simmons, what the students were like, what they learned, dorm living, and how putting all that together formed the identity of Simmons. But first we had to talk about that fire. What is actually going into founding the college? Sure. As you know, John Simmons passed away in 1870. His will set up the founding of Simmons, the establishment of Simmons Female College at the time it was called. And everything was going according to plan until 1872, the Great Fire of Boston wiped out all of Mr. Simmons's, all of his estate, basically. The history of the institution, back in 1932, a chemistry professor wrote a book about the history of Simmons and called it Delayed by Fire. And that's exactly what happened. The founding of the institution was delayed for almost 30 years, during which time the value of the property was able to uh, increase again to a point where it was uh, feasible to sell to establish the college. I think it's easy to get caught in the what-ifs when learning about John and the founding of Simmons College. Mainly, what if the fire didn't happen and John's real estate was readily available after his death? But we can't change the past. And the trustees knew that as well, and were still determined to honor John's legacy with the resources they had. So with that kind of going on on this side, at the same time, the first board of trustees, basically, the, uh, the corporation was established, drawing a lot from kind of the progressive movement in Boston. A lot of the Boston Brahmins were involved in this. And uh, they appointed Henry Lefebvre. L later, he served as the first president of the college, but he was... Uh, there at the outset in the 1890s, uh, sort of developing a plan of instruction. And it was under basically Dr. Lefebvre's guidance that uh, the actual programs that the college would offer at, at its outset were kind of established. Yes, Lefebvre, as in the Lefebvre building. In a way, he was one of the people responsible for shaping the identity of the institution. Okay, it's 1902. Simmons is open and ready to welcome its first students. Kind of. The campus didn't quite look like it does today. There were 32 members, I believe 32 members of the class of 1906 that would have come in in 1902. Largely, I mean, the earliest students of the college were all commuters, obviously, because there was no residential campus. So largely drawn from the Boston and, the, and sort of the, the surrounding town, uh, surrounding vicinity. The school, actually, the MCB wasn't even open at the time. That opened in 1904, in the fall of 04. So for the first two years, the college rented office space and classroom space and administrative office space along the Back Bay and over near where Northeastern is now. So, so that was where the college was first kind of formed in a, in a strange kind of, uh, of way. I think Simmons is special because of the strong academic offerings that act as pillars of the overall program. If someone asks you what Simmons is known for, what comes to mind? Nursing, 
library science, social work maybe? Denise had pointed out that at the time um, that John was establishing his will, there wasn't really kind of any like educational institution for women at the time. But by the time Simmons was established, you know, you had like Smith, Wellesley. Yeah. So I guess maybe there was this kind of need to present itself as unique from these other institutions. It was unique in its inherency. I think it was, it was unique. And I don't know that it had to be presented as unique yeah. because it, it, in a sense, its educational program is modeled a bit after MIT, just in the form of professional preparation with a strong background in the liberal arts and sciences. I think it was, by its very definition, its DNA was unique. Okay. And oh, I, yeah. I yeah. didn't know that. It was kind of modeled after MIT. Do you know more about, like, the uh, beginning academic programs? If you, if you look deeper into sort of the early history, you see, you see opportunities. And I haven't ever found actual correspondence between the founders of Simmons and the uh, senior administration at MIT at the time. So... Whether there was correspondence or exchange of ideas, it's, it's kind of unclear, but it seems possible. Mm-hmm. One could almost say likely. Right, right. <laughs> the coursework, uh, there were four initial programs when the college opened. There was the uh, School of Library Science, School of Household Economics, School of Secretarial Studies, and the School of Science. The coursework was remarkably challenging. I've actually looked at some of the early... Uh, library science exams. I have some of them from the 19-teens in my office. And I would be damned if I could possibly answer them and, and pass the class today, mm-hmm. not to disparage at all the curriculum of, of today, but there was such a level of, of detail and so much emphasis was put on knowing your subject matter and knowing it forwards, backwards, and every way around to an extent where it's clear that the idea was that you would have a very strong grounding in arts and sciences with equally deep understanding of your particular field. So it would basically become almost second nature to you. If you hear students speak of their experiences in the early school of publications from the 30s or 40s, for instance, the, uh, the level of detail and what seems like minutia to us today, but in understanding uh, sort of font styles and layouts and, and those kind of matters, you know, they, they, they had it wrote memorization. It was, it was, it's kind of astounding the mm. amount of recall these young women had to have around uh, what seems like very obscure subject matter. But, you know, again, if you're, if you're working in public health nursing, you don't want to have to uh, uh, dig deep in your mind to do a recall of, of particular weights, measures, and facts. You want to have them right on the ready. So uh, there were lots of, in the early days, there was a f- c- tremendous amount of collaboration or uh, affiliations, I guess, between Simmons and other institutions in Boston. The Household Economics Program had some connections to Fannie Farmer and her Boston Cooking School. There was a program in physical ed that had connections to the Bouvet School of Gymnastics over on Huntington Avenue. We had affiliations in the early days with the Women's Industrial, Women's Educational Industrial Union, WEIU, working with Lucinda Prince, who her name current still lives on at Simmons in the Prince Retailing Program, I believe, in the School of Management, mm. an undergraduate level. So there were a lot of practitioners. A lot of, it was a very practically-based school. Uh, so while there were certainly folks with PhDs and backgrounds in literature and, and, and uh, for modern languages and whatnot, 
there was also a considerable number of folks who were engaged in the particular fields that they were teaching. So obviously some things like secretarial and horticultural studies aren't really being offered today. Yes, Jason told me we had a horticultural studies program at one point. A good college will evaluate their academic programs for relevancy, and eventually that had to be done for Simmons. In order to do that, some faculty came together and conducted a study. The faculty of, the, of, the, of, of Simmons kind of did a, a, a three-year self-study program where they looked at Simmons and they looked at what, the, what did higher education look like in the 1960s. Was a professional education still relevant in the days when things were veering much more toward the liberal arts and sciences? And, and that was probably the most salient, I guess, reorganization of the college up to that point, where it went from the school-based structure to a department. And that's when the Department of Economics would develop or the Department of Psychology would have opened around that time. And at the same time, the uh, professional schools, if you will, the graduate schools basically, started differentiating themselves from the core undergraduate curriculum. Uh, that was the same time as well that the BA, the Bachelor of Arts, was first offered. Before that, every Simmons student got a Bachelor of Science degree. Mm -hmm. Just an odd little fact. Uh, so I think that, looking back in reflection, that sort of work that was done 50-some-odd years ago is probably the most significant reorganization of the college. But the good thing about it is that you could reorganize the college all you wanted, but you still didn't really change its character at all. It was more of taking what Simmons did and what Simmons was good at and kind of matching it up with what the marketplace was looking for at the yeah. time. My main takeaway from our conversation was that while Simmons had gone through a lot of change, Simmons itself didn't so much. What changed a lot was dorm life. And a lot of our alumni probably don't recall having to be back in their room by 10 p.m. or having to wait downstairs for a phone call. Certainly by the time the residential campus opened around 1906, you know, when that land was purchased and uh, South Hall was the first dorm built, that very much changed the character of the college and over the next 40 or so years, tremendously much so, where Simmons went from being largely a commuter school, drawing women from the surrounding areas to being more of a, a draw, I guess, where we had for our first international student in 1909, I mm. think, attended Simmons College. And certainly with the war years and, and going through the history through the 30s, pretty much through the 60s and 70s, the residential campus was such a center of student activity in a very coordinated, almost, I was going to say cloying, but it's not quite cloying. It's uh, the residential campus was uh, lived under house mother rules, I guess you mm -hmm. could say, with dress codes and parietals, and you had to check yourself out of dorms and, you know, a standard of living that today's students would find atrocious. You know, one phone on a floor, and then you had to the call slips would have to to go forth to let you know that someone had dropped you, a, had given you a phone call, and the, the queuing up for, for that kind of thing. Uh, you know, and today when everyone has a computer in their pocket, it's just astounding to think of that. But certainly, once the residence campus came into its own, around the time that Misek and Dix and all of those dorms were built. Uh, there was such a student life focus there. You know, the traditions were had come very much into being from the first tradition of the May, Maypole Dance, the May Day, and all of those affiliated events. 
all the way up through the Old English Dinner, the Spring Spree, all of these things that continue in some form today got their start back in the 19-teens and 20s. While Simmons has more of its traditional traditions, I think at the core of its identity is a set of characteristics of the average Simmons student that hasn't wavered. We may have very little in common with the class of 1906, but that spirit of independence, agency, and determination has remained intact after all these years. You wonder what drew the first class of, 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 of students here. Like, what were they, obviously they were looking to improve their lot in life. And I've had a retired faculty member who's been working on a sort of a survey of the alumni over the, over the years of Simmons, going all the way back to alums from the 1920s. She's done interviews with them to sort of get a sense of why they came to Simmons and what they left with. And of course, you know, there was the old joke, if you go to college to get an MRS degree, you know, and there certainly was a fair number of students who married and pursued a career or didn't pursue a career. But I think the rates of sort of professional careers were markedly higher for Simmons students, Simmons grads, than they were for other women's college graduates. So, of course, you know, in a world where women didn't have the right to vote, and even today where you're looking at a sort of equitable pay and, and sort of parity issues like that, you know, the idea that these women would have the standing and the, the internal aspiration and expectation to go forth and not need a man to depend upon or, or, the, or the sort of the safety net that family and et cetera provides is a really audacious proposition and it's, and it's an inherently cool proposition as well. <laughs> to put it simply, Simmons students get things done and they make sure their voices get heard. Certainly, there's always been a, f a tremendous amount of you know, you know, activism. I mean, however you define activism, at Simmons, like I said, going back to the core founding vision, it, you know, it's, it was a radical proposition at the time. And, and these women were intrepid in, in just venturing into a totally unfound, un, un, unknowable kind of, of an educational institution. Like, would this work? Who knows? So I think this, this, this kind of activist mentality sort of infused itself into the college and, and the student population, even in the more you know, conservative eras where the students didn't really ruffle any feathers. The very pursuit of professional educational, professional preparation for women was just kind of a, of a, of a like I say, radical notion. Certainly there were places where Simmons students took very strong say in how they managed, how they governed themselves. The first student group that was founded was the Student Government Association. Within like two weeks of the college's opening, the students were like, we're going to have a say in this, you know. The uh, student newspaper, the Simmons News, first showed up in 1923, I think. And this is one of the most mind-blowing facts I've ever stumbled across, was one of the first newspapers, student newspapers in the country that wasn't under the education the editorial auspices of the administration. These women could write their own perspectives, their own viewpoints on everything that was going on from the most minute gossipy sorts of things about what was going on over in the dining hall, all the way to considering you know, what, the, what Hitler's advance meant to world affairs. Mm -hmm. It ran the gamut and they could publish it without having to get permission from you know, the man or the president or the time which was unheard of even for places like Harvard or whatnot, other you know, venerated student newspapers that we think of today, still had to get the approval of 
of administration, you know, and other, you know, and so there's that sense of, of self-directed nature at Simmons. And, and certainly you see that flare up at various times over the intervening 120, 115 years the college has been around. Certainly the, uh, the work of the BSO, the, the work they did in the, in the late 60s and early 70s around the 10 demands being issued, it's just stating very clear, succinct, cogent points that, that, that and, and taking them to the administration uh, with, you know, a list of, you know, demands, but also just a sort of uh, changes to be implemented. And the college working closely with them over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, basically, to implement a lot of these changes. And then you see the cycle repeat again in 2015 when the BSO issued their second set of 10 demands. And the college, again, doing an iterative process of responding to them and finding ways of, of addressing their concerns and, and, you know, in a way that works for the students and respecting and reflecting their intentions as well as sort of works for the institution. So mm -hmm. one of the most dramatic things, I think, and this is another one of my favorite, most like, sort of uh, apocryphal Simmons' stories, was in the 1980s when the college was, along with many other educational institutions, had money basically invested in companies that did business with apartheid-era South Africa. And the students at the time, and rightfully so, flew into an uproar. Like, this is inconsistent with our values. This is inconsistent with what we as a community believe in, that we're basically profiting off a segregated, racist regime. And... And the work they did is so laudable. They uh, did hardcore investigating. They held workshops explaining what the issues were to educate the community, educate the faculty even, and made a very strong case to the board to divest all of Simmons's, any sort of connections that Simmons had to uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa. And the college went through with it, which was just such an admirable point of evidence where, you know, Simmons students could realize significant change, both that was significant to Simmons as well as supported a greater cause, which I think just ties back again into the whole being prepared for a life's work, being prepared to make a difference in the world in whatever capacity that may look like at the time. continues to evolve, I did find it comforting to learn how its values have remained relatively consistent over the years, even when faced with existential questions that many other small, private, women-centered institutions must answer every so often. Yeah, I mean, Simmons has always had strong graduate programs, which from the, almost the outset, from the, the 40s, have been largely co-educational. And certainly the change of, you know, the 90s was a period where, you know, you had the year of the woman in 92 politically um, and, you know, the idea that glass ceilings were breaking and what was the relevance of a women's education, what was the relevance of a single-sex education. And so certainly there were a bunch of colleges back at that time that did go co-ed. I mean, our sister school, you know, and it was, it was always a big deal. If you look at the student newspaper, so certainly, you know, like Mills College, you know, there was all of these institutions that were making or considering to make the leaps. And I think 
you know, Simmons certainly went through some financial difficulties in the 90s and, and sort of had to reassess again, as it does every 10 or 15 years. Where are we and what do we mean in this particular setting? And I do think that sort of an emphasis on increased research on the graduate faculty side, increased attention paid to some of those programs, which have been and continue to be kind of Simmons's you know, premier programs, like you know Simmons produces great nurses, Simmons produces great librarians. You hear these these things out in the in the field. So in a sense, they double down on on, on those programs, I guess you could say, and place more emphasis on them. And I think you know President Cheever. I remember in the early two thousands when there was still the ongoing conversation, like does Simmons is it essential for Simmons to uh, succeed is essential for Simmons to continue and 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 it, it, it is necessary for it to be a women's college you know all of these kind of very existential issues and uh, uh, President Cheever uh, basically said that he didn't want to see the institution move to a co-ed from a place of weakness like if that was a decision that the corporation that the board wanted to make it should be because there were advantages to be found in offering its program to both men and women, as opposed to like a Hail Mary pass, like maybe this will be what saves us. You know, so again, it goes back to the founding principle, the founding vision, and kind of an adherence to that and an understanding of how that maps and shapes and contorts to fit the context that we're sort of in now. Were there any of those moments in history where Simmons had to kind of decide what direction to take and how they could maintain their identity or maybe have to change it. Certainly, I mean, there's always every strategic planning initiative that the college undertakes is an opportunity for that kind of reflection, inward reflection and outward exploration, I guess. And I've looked at them going back to the 1940s. You know, the first strategic plan that I can find was done here at the college by President Beatley, <laughs> you know. So it's it's a fascinating to look at that, and then to you know I've worked in, on uh, some strategic planning committees for the college up to in the early in the two thousands and for the, you know five or ten years ago, and just to see the same kinds of issues keep reiterating themselves and the same kind of responses to them, like what is valuable about Simmons, what's most valuable about Simmons, the sense of community, the sense of purpose, you know, all of these continue to. And then what are some existential in the whole SWAT kind of analysis? Um, like, is being a women's college a weakness or is it a strength, an opportunity? Or, you know, it could fall into any of those four depending upon what the inflection point in Simmons's history is at that point. So it, it's curious to, to consider how this kind of uh, ineffable idea that John Simmons came up with has been translated and kind of recapitulated and, and recast over the intervening 150 almost years now. And yet we keep coming back to this core central idea of, of there being a Simmons community that has a higher calling or has a, has a, has a higher mission. So I think any kind of, of existentialist questions that any at any particular like series of events you know like a financial markets crash or this happens or that happens all of those points are are, are the kind of the pain points I think where you have to actually step back and say okay Simmons can make it through this and come out and looking like what mm -hmm. so I think it, it's always a good it's not of course not great to have to do this under a cloud of, of financial difficulty or 
questioning the relevancy of an institution, but it's always good to do those, those introspective considerations. And any other interesting moments throughout history that you think were particularly important to Simmons's history? Every moment, you know, they always say we live in interesting times. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think any generation at Simmons could look back and say, oh, we live in interesting times. There was the, uh, certainly the founding was, was a curious crucible of time. The growth of programs, the development of the residential campus, again, I mean, it was a significant shift in how Simmons students engaged with one another, with the campus, with Boston as a, as a location. You, you continue on through, and, and uh, certainly it's a series of shifts, but the interesting thing has always been how it comes around to some core sense of identity and purpose. Before ending my conversation with Jason, I had to ask, was there anything he hasn't uncovered yet that he wants to? One of the plaguing things for me in the 17 years I've been here has been, why is there no documented history of students being concerned with the suffrage movement. These women have come here, clearly have an independent streak, clearly they think they should have be able to have jobs and earn an independent livelihood. Have not only jobs, but professions, you know, unheard of. So why was there such little evidence that they were fired up and engaged with the right to vote? You know, it's just always puzzled me. History professor Laura Prieto this summer uncovered a member of the class of 1919 who was actually involved in some of the uh, protests in 1918. I figured maybe it was 1919 when the protests were and she was class of 1920, I can't remember. But I was like, finally, some point of connection. So, you know, if I could just find in a student government association minutes even reference to interest in the suffrage. So that's one of those sort of white elephants or whatever it is that you're always hunting down. So, but, you know. progress has led us to today, and I thought it would make sense to talk to our current leader about what Simmons is doing now and why. For this podcast, I was lucky enough to spend some time with President Helen Drynan. She spoke frankly about the name change, Simmons's successes, and areas of growth. She shared her vision of Simmons and where she hopes it will be in the future. I met with Helen in the boardroom of her office, which houses a little bit of John's history. That's his chair over there in that corner, mm-hmm. and that's his clock over there. Wow. My conversation with Helen was enlightening. The higher education landscape has often been disenchanting, at least for me. It's hard to tell what the reality is and what I feel has been shielded for me, especially as a student. Colleges and universities, of course, want to showcase their strengths and not draw so much attention to their weaknesses. That's just smart. While talking with Helen, I realized the gravity of this decision to become a university and how crucial it was to make the right choice at the right time. To Helen, It just makes sense to call us who we are. I think uh, Simmons is becoming a university was really a natural progression. When you think about the origins of the college in in those days, there were really just courses offered, lines of discipline that you could pursue. But they were just courses and then a degree at the end. And then as the century moved on after the founding of the college, it became 
common for whole programs to come together at the graduate level. Simmons was an early pioneer in graduate education. In fact, um, I only recently learned how much of a pioneer Simmons was in graduate education um, because Dean Emeritus of our Library and Information School had done a really wonderful study on this. And there's, it's really quite impressive. It's almost like John Simmons and earning an independent livelihood and then Simmons and creating these specialty disciplines so that you could become particularly expert in certain things. And at the time, that was new, very new, new, new thinking. So both creating the, the path at the undergraduate level to become uh, able to earn an independent livelihood and then the path to become a specialist and obviously earn an even more independent livelihood, specialist-related uh, livelihood, both originated at Simmons, and I think that's really a strong, strong foundation. And when you put the two together, you have the definition of a university. Mm-hmm. Now, for the longest time, we stuck with the name college, which was fine, because I think we were really very focused on undergraduate education. But as the um, decade, decades passed by, we really grew in our reputation, particularly for the library and information science program that became nationally ranked. Mm-hmm. The nursing program is extremely well admired across the entire New England area. People recognize Simmons nurses. And then our social work program, of course, was the first in the nation. Collaboration with Harvard to get it off the ground, but it was the first created social work program in the country. So all of a sudden we have this really strong relationship with these particular fields, and we become very well known for these fields. Now the definition of uh, university has been an undergraduate program, master's degree programs, and then it used to be very formalized, minimum of two doctoral programs. Now it's more generalized, but we have met that standard decades ago. And so about 10 years ago, we really looked hard at the idea of formalizing the name as Simmons University because we were contemplating what does this college do as it goes more seriously into the international markets. And the word college particularly in countries that have followed the British education system, is viewed as high school. So here, Helen puts it pretty succinctly, the reasoning behind the name change. We meet all the qualifications of a university technically, but does it position us in a better place in the greater higher education landscape? Will we have eventually been put at a disadvantage by calling ourselves a college? No specific doors have been opened, but I would say two things. Number one, very clearly we're positioning ourselves now for much more growth and work in the international arena. And we knew that they will serve us very well to have changed our name to university. So that's a big one. And that's a huge opportunity for Simmons. We've barely scratched the surface of that opportunity. The second one is with our research that we did when we originally contemplated going to university about 10 years ago, it was very clear to us that graduate research, graduate students, graduate programs, all have a more natural draw under a university status. I think at that level, you're just assumed to be seriously interested in the fields you're in. Now, we were always seriously interested in the fields we were in when we were in college. But I think that wasn't, for people who don't know Simmons College, I think the words Simmons University tips the um, likelihood that someone will think of us in that more largely competitive way. Mm-hmm. So um, I think it's, on, on the one hand, it's international, and on the other hand, it's serious graduate education. In the past few decades, there has been significant growth within Simmons's graduate programs, especially the ones we are best known for, social work, management, and nursing. And with the introduction of online programs, 
that growth has just continued exponentially. Growth at the graduate level is very deliberate because <clears throat> we are a small institution with a relatively modest endowment. So for us, our real economic engine is our graduate education. And it's true across the United States that most undergraduate programs do not ever have sufficient funds just based on the tuition that they collect, even their draw on their endowment. They need more money because when you offer a liberal arts foundation and then professional preparation, you have to be able to support a wide variety of faculties in a lot of fields where not a lot of people are going to necessarily be studying, but you have to do that if you want to be a liberal arts uh, education. And we definitely want to sustain that liberal arts foundation combined with professional preparation. That's an expensive undertaking. And for us at Simmons, the beauty of having these graduate programs is they're great programs. They're very well reputed. And we have been able to offer them at a relatively modest competitive price. We, we are as competitive as anyone with whom we compete on the, in the online world. In the on-the-ground world, we're all often the low-price producer. And so that gives us an opportunity to both offer the education that we have at a reasonable price, not cheap, no one would say that, but then to make a, make a margin on that that we can then use to invest in the undergraduate education. Mm -hmm. And that's how the system can work to the whole university's benefit. And the more we do that, of course, the more we strengthen the undergraduate college. Most universities are defined by the strength of their undergraduate college. An interesting revelation I had during my conversation with Helen was how this large investment in the graduate education helps sustain the undergraduate program. Though our grad programs are bigger in terms of enrollment, a woman-centered undergraduate program is still an essential part of the Simmons education and identity. But how essential is it really? As much progress as society has made with advancing women's rights, there's the question of the relevancy of a woman-centered education that looms over Simmons, as well as other women's colleges. Nowadays, it can be seen as a costly deterrent to students enrolling, which is why we've witnessed many women's colleges become co-ed recently. It's an unfortunate reality to behold because to Helen, a woman-centered education is still very relevant today. Well, you know, in my experience, as I've grown through my working career, each period of time has given me a slightly different look at that question. When you think about the fact that in... 1960, let's say, women still could not get credit on their own. Now, when John Simmons founded this college, women couldn't get credit. They couldn't even own land or property. They couldn't. So, okay, they still can't get credit almost a decade later. Got the vote. Got the vote roughly 35 years after John Simmons died. I mean, it's been slow. Now, there was a period of time from the 60s to the 80s, when there was rapid change in the law, all these laws went into place. Of course, women can now have credit. And even today, there are refinements towards women's rights and towards their ability to work. So only very recently has there been legislation around women's ability to get accommodations for their um, kinds of conditions that can occur while they're pregnant mm -hmm. in the workplace. So. Up until very recently, if you were pregnant in the workplace and you could not sit for, let's say, five hours because you were having back pain, that's your problem. Not so much anymore. 
So I would say that the laws have made rapid progress. And the laws, of course, are a statement of the mindset of the culture, at least at the highest level. The actual implementation of this takes generations. Mm -hmm. And I think today, look at what we're looking at on, on this Kavanaugh hearing. And if you look at the Anita Hill hearings, it is eerily, eerily similar. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we've made lots of progress. And yes, things are writing, moving in the right direction. But from my point of view, the challenges are more subtle they're harder to parse out and understand, particularly for new entrants to the workplace or to the world. And so I think the need for women to have an opportunity in their life to just think about how do I fit in this world? How do I want to fit in this world? How do I want to live and work in this world without the tensions and the competition of all the societal issues associated with male-female relationships is a gift. And you know, there's research that now says that even women who never went to a, a, any kind of a college or a program that focused on the issues associated with women, if they have that experience in a training opportunity as executives, if they can get out of the workplace, be with just other women, they can advance their own capability, confidence, competency with just that kind of an experience, not necessarily four years of undergraduate education. So I think the idea that having a timeout Four years is a long time out, <laughs> but even a short time out to really reflect and think about how you compete in a male-dominated world, which we certainly are still operating in, is of continuing value. Of course, that doesn't mean we can stick to the status quo. What works today may not work in 10, maybe five years from now. Students will continue to have different needs. I really believe that a college like this is at its best when the student is treated as a whole person. Mm -hmm. And the student has the right and the opportunity to explore any aspect of her being and her life that is meaningful. Mm -hmm. And so that may be, uh, on the one hand, she's passionate about political science. Uh, but on the other hand, it might be she's passionate about crew or passionate about um, being... Um, in service to the community through one of our various and really uh, active strong women, strong girls, different organizations that we have. Maybe she's passionate about chess. I mean, that's good too. Just find what is your passion here. I, I also think that um, Sarah Neal once said to me that there's a place for anyone at Simmons. There's a place where anyone can fit here. And um, it's, that was an interesting thing for Sarah to, me, to say to me because that's meaningful, I think. It, it, it suggests a community which is tolerant. And tolerance is such an important thing. You know, you don't have to be like me to be my good neighbor. Mm -hmm. You don't have to think like me. You don't have to act like me. And I think as a lesson to our country, that's a great lesson. So if you can come here and do all of that exploration while you're here and go out of here stronger in your own feelings about yourself, and in your understanding of the fact that other people are, just like you, committed to their own passions, mm -hmm. that's a huge takeaway from your college experience. And I think Simmons needs to afford that. And it's a work in progress, Naya. I mean, you know, th this is the, I feel that the society we're in is so rapidly changing. Mm -hmm. And you only have four years here. So we've got four classes, each of which has its own agenda. And, and it's constantly being churned up because, of course, one class is leaving, one class is coming, and you've mm -hmm. always got that churn going on. 
And I think it really calls us to be as open as we can to all different styles and, and lifestyles and thinking. I do think we have some particular challenges. I think civil discourse has been sacrificed recently to a whole array of uh, other concerns, all of which are legitimate, and I think we need to find the balance. Mm-hmm. And I think we will, but it's, it's choppy. <laughs> it's choppy. You know, we have um, a new person here that we brought in just recently. She's only been here for eight days, and that's Deborah Perez. And um, I really want students to get a chance to spend time with Deborah because she's bringing a whole new way of thinking about inclusion and really starting at the big picture of what is the culture of Simmons mm-hmm. and how does inclusion, how does equity, how does diversity, how does, how does um, intellectualism, how does everything come together in a way that everybody can see where they can be in this, can be or where they choose to be. Mm-hmm. I'm really, really so grateful that she's here. So, uh, you know, lots going on. I, I, I take pride in the fact that Simmons was the second women's college in, in the country to uh, to actively and heartily welcome transgender students. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and we, we decided that not because other places were talking about it, but because we felt like it was the right thing for Simmons to do. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> I'm sure there are plenty of transgender students who think, huh, she was responsible for that because I don't like that she did this, I don't mm-hmm. like that she did that. That's okay. You know, I mean, when you bring in, uh, when, you, why, when you widen the tent, you're going to bring in more and more people who are going to have more and more different opinions. And you're going to get that, and that's fine. That's the outcome you're looking for. Mm. Simmons, in a way, has a responsibility to evolve in order to better serve the needs of its students. It would definitely be a disservice to avoid changing. At the same time, it can be hard to predict what the future really holds. So how can we be strategic with change? I asked Helen what would be worth exploring or aspiring to in the future to become a better Simmons. We all, I think, aspire to Simmons in perpetuity. That's, you know, that's the way, way up here, <laughs> highest level goal, Simmons in perpetuity. Mm-hmm. Towards that end, I think we have to keep our eye on our mission all the time. So uh, one very clear example of that to me, I think the undergraduate colleges is doing very well. I think it can do even better. Mm-hmm. And every time we hire a new faculty member who has a new set of skills and experiences they're bringing, I feel like that's another shot in the arm to that undergraduate effort. I think our graduate programs are pretty strong, can always get better, you know, constant, Mm -hmm. continuous improvement. I think we're missing an opportunity to support a very large group of women who may have started an undergraduate degree but didn't finish it, maybe never started, and didn't see it as within the realm of possible. Mm -hmm. That population is very big, and it's predominantly women. Mm -hmm. It's like 77% women. It's huge. Wow. So that's an extension of our mission that I think makes a lot of sense for us to explore. It, not in competition with the undergraduate college, because with the undergraduate college, you're talking about a residential experience with a strong liberal arts foundation where you're essentially in a, um, a developmental focus. This is how we develop leaders in the United States. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. I'm talking about probably technologically supported because mm-hmm. we've learned from our graduate programs that we can support students in Washington State, Hawaii, Alaska with the technology we have today. And the quality of our programs then is, is really what we're putting forward. Mm-hmm. But it's another whole round of new investment. Mm-hmm. We have to 
get ready to make that investment. And there are people already in the marketplace that are trying to do this. So, for example, just this morning, the University of Pennsylvania has announced an online education program. That's the University of Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. not the University of Phoenix. Right, right. <laughs> an online program for undergraduate candidates who never took a degree before. Mm-hmm. And they are setting the price below the price that they offer per credit hour for their graduate education. Now, it's significantly lower Mm -hmm. than their on-the-ground undergraduate program. Mm -hmm. And we've not been able to do that, to get the price down below what our current on-the-ground program is. So that would be a challenge for Mm us. But I think it's a challenge we're we're up to. Mm -hmm. And um, the second part of that, of course, is once you've figured out how to do this, in the United States, then you can take this outside the United States. Now, you have the language issues, mm-hmm. but you have plenty of people in non-English speaking countries who are English speaking and can convert your courses. Once you've done the conversion and you know what the course model looks like, mm-hmm. then you're just translating. I think that's a huge opportunity for students, and I think it's one we should be actively pursuing. It's straight down the, the uh, mission mm-hmm. path. I also think we have to be thinking about leadership. You know, we claim a mantle of leadership. We use leadership to bind our undergraduate program. I don't think we've really put forward a proposition to share what we know about leadership generally mm-hmm. with women and men broadly. I think that's a big opportunity for us. So basically what I'm saying is that Simmons needs to exploit the things that it knows how to do and that fit with its mission. And they're right there sitting in front of us. And those kinds of things we want to grasp and do the very best we can with. Because for an institution to reach perpetuity, it must continue to grow. It can't just lie fallow doing what it's done and done well. Mm. The world is changing right in front of us, and things are happening like the University of Pennsylvania putting forward an online undergraduate education mm. that people didn't think were going to happen right. or were likely to happen. But that's going to keep happening. We need to be on top of it. Think about the different things that have happened on this campus. You know, we've had Hillary Clinton, we've had Michelle Obama, we've had Gloria Steinem, we've had women that are running for public office for the first time, women that have been in public office. I mean, we've really, this is a place that draws interesting people. Mm -hmm. And I think our students, um, I think our students are interested in learning from those kinds of people. I think they're ever more constantly looking for more and more and more of that. The student experience seemed to stand as a test of Simmons' effectiveness as an institution. It's the main focal point when evaluating Simmons as a whole. We will always seek to improve the student experience for their benefit. I wanted to know what Helen envisions the ideal student experience to be and if it's within our reach. I was thinking this morning about students who come to Simmons and I was thinking about what is happening in four years, you know, while you're at college, and not any college, not just Simmons, but what I see at Simmons is something that I, I've said to other people that I think distinguishes someone who's gone to Simmons, and I think uh, our students are some of the least entitled people I have ever met in my life. They come here with a great sense of purpose. They come here with hope for themselves and ambition for themselves and they do something with it and they're not looking at what can you do for me and what can you do for me they're really enterprising about how they find opportunities and work with a faculty member or work with a department chair on something that's meaningful to them 
So that I think when they leave here, they've had the real world experiences of fending for themselves. And I don't mean that in a hostile way. I mean that in a developmental way. I think, I don't know how we accomplish that. Obviously, the faculty has a great deal to do with that. Mm -hmm. That's strength. And I don't know whether it's, you know, vulnerable to growth or vulnerable to mission expansion. You know, I was reading an article just, just before you came, I was reading an article about change. And the article said that most organizations that take on what, what, what we label transformative change, significant organizational change, not change a department, but change the organization, one out of four succeeds. So if you think about that, if you think the organization needs to change, it's not just saying, oh, let's change. And only one out of four times when an organization needs to change, is it successful at changing? So if our students come out of here with the kinds of skills that have helped them grow in those four years from that 18-year-old person to this now 21, two-year-old person mm -hmm. who has gone through a bunch of changes to get to that place, they're well prepared for that. And I think that is really important. Of course, they'll have learned things. I and mean, of course, they're going to know how to read and write. But to be resilient in the face of change and not even just resilient, but capturing that capacity and taking advantage of it, I think that's a remarkable thing about what some students learn to do here. And I think um, I really admire that. And I'd love to see us figure out how we make sure that that stays. That's, a, that's an opportunity that stays in the in the formula. So, how do you balance the needs of the community with the vision of the founder of your institution? Sometimes I wonder if there are the risks of those two things diverging. Can you allow yourself to contradict a mission of Simmons if it means serving rightly the people we're supposed to serve? It's certainly a challenge for a president to address with care. When I first came to Simmons, I didn't know John Simmons' story. Mm. And I realized that not a lot of people here knew John Simmons' story. For Helen, it's a matter of reinterpreting John's vision for the 21st century, and it helps to know that John was a man with prodigious foresight. One of the things that really caught my attention with John Simmons was the fact that he had made his livelihood, of course, in clothing manufacturing and became the largest clothing manufacturer of the country in the Civil War. But think, I think about this. So how did he make his money? He made his money because a large number of women needed to make a living doing what they could do. Mm -hmm. They weren't trained to do anything. So they sat in their houses, no sewing machines, working on heavy material. And if, if you've even sewed a button on a shirt, you know that if you have to go through multiple layers of heavy material with a uh, needle, that is hard, hard work. Your hands and your fingers work very hard. Most of the homes they worked in, because they worked at home, the, the piecework was delivered to their home and they worked in a dark. They didn't have incandescent lighting. So mm -hmm. It was painfully strenuous work. He makes his living because so many women were working like that. And it's not hard to attach the notion that he wanted better for those women. Mm -hmm. He was grateful to those women. He owed his livelihood to those women. So he did something for them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the whole, the whole business of giving back or paying forward or these phrases that we use, very few people are like John Simmons and say, my life has been really good and I'm going to turn around and give it back or I'm going to pay it forward. And so I think that role model of the ultimate philanthropist, he gave everything he ever made to this college, except he did take care of 
his two daughters. Mm-hmm. And you know, his sons had all predeceased him. Mm-hmm. So he knew that his his family line was coming to an end. This was his legacy. I just think that's such an inspiring story. Now, was he a perfect man? I don't know because we don't know very much about him, but I doubt it. Who's perfect? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, just that, and think about it. So I, I'm, I'm saying again, women still didn't have the vote, and he was trying to figure out a way that women could get an independent livelihood. Yeah. That is foresight for sure. No matter how Simmons changes, how we restructure academic program, how many buildings we build or take down, Simmons can thrive as long as it maintains the core values that were instilled through John's will. When you're a president or a board member of a not-for-profit organization whose basic financial strength comes from the work and the estate of a person who put it to that use, you have an obligation to steward that investment and to make sure that it's working in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of colleges and universities is that they're supposed to last forever. That's a big big order. So each board that comes through this place takes um, takes the responsibility as a fiduciary. They're responsible for the financial well-being of the college. And there are certain expectations. You're expected to have a duty of care. You're expected mm-hmm. to care about this institution and a duty of loyalty. All of that, I think, constitutes um, a lot to think about when you, when you put yourself in the position of saying, so what's my relationship with John Simmons? A Simmons in perpetuity seems like an ideal future to look forward to. How do we get there? Do you see any lessons that you could take away from the first hundred years of Simmons that you can mm-hmm. bring into the next hundred? It's a good question. I think what I would say for the last hundred years of Simmons's existence, I have been intensely involved for 10 of those years. I was a student here too, so you know when you think about the amount of time I've spent here, it's a long span of my life, but this last 10 years has been deep, 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 deep in the very roots of the place. <laughs> um, and, and I would say a couple of things are very important. One is to hold on to the mission. Now, the mission is not so that the scholars can earn an independent livelihood, just those words, mm-hmm. but the, the essence of that mission should never go away because that is really what has driven Simmons for all these many years. And I think you, you move away from that at your great jeopardy. So I think that's one lesson learned is stick to your mission. Mm. Another lesson learned from me is when your pockets are not deep, you have to be very resourceful. So we're not Harvard. And we're never, well, I don't know, never say never. Uh, uh, we're not Harvard. And as a result, we have to behave in a way that is conscious of the fact that every dollar we spend comes from a donor mm-hmm. or a student. And we constantly have to think about that. And that also means we constantly have to think about what of our assets that we have are we not using. So as I just suggested to you, I think leadership is a big asset we have that we're not fully using. So a second lesson learned is use every resource we have at our disposal. And I think the last thing I would say, the third lesson learned for me, is that I think it is vitally important that we protect our women's college status. And I mean from all comers, the government, the society, all the people who want to say women's education is no longer relevant. Until the day, we're very convinced it's no longer relevant.
This episode of Simmons Under the Surface was produced by the Simmons University Office of Advancement with tremendous help from the Simmons University radio station. I would like to thank them for letting us use their studio for the recording of this episode. Thank you to Denise Pappas, Jason Wood, and Helen Dryden for taking us on this journey through Simmons' fascinating past, present, and potential future. And special thanks to you, dear listener, for listening to the very first episode of Simmons Under the Surface. My name is Sanaya Sampson-Hill. We'll see you next month. Oh, and happy Simtober. <laughs>